This is Broadcast Mysteries, a podcast. A story about a case of the unexplained, the uncanny, and the unsolved. I'm Carolee Gerwin. We ended off last episode with something that, when I walked into Sylvester Woods' home, I did not expect. Now, what did I expect? I'm not sure. This is the first time I would get to talk to someone who really knew what was happening with Revolver at the time of Cole's disappearance. I wanted answers about Revolver, about what went on there. Did I get the ones I wanted? I'm not sure. But one thing remains clear, something that myself, as well as Jamie, the man who brought me this case in the first place, both agree on. Something bad happened on August 20th, all those years ago, and that something had something to do with Revolver Industries. But I want to take a step back first. Before we get into the second part of my interview with Sylvester Woods, I want you to really think about him as a person, and whether or not his words are actually credible. In the time since I recorded the interview and now, there's information I've received regarding Sylvester Woods that make me seriously question his current state of mind, and whether or not the detectives in charge of this case may have been right. To do this, we'll have to look not just who Sylvester Woods is, but who he was. I'm going to take you back a bit, to a time well before Cole Atkins disappeared, to a time before Cole and Sylvester Woods even met, well before Revolver was a mysterious company, and even well before Jasper was a notorious crime boss, though that last one I'd have to verify more accurately. I want to take you back to an upper-class neighborhood in the south end of Edmonton. The year was 1973. Connor and Evelyn Woods, two prominent, respected people in the community, were gifted with the birth of their first and only child. Sylvester Allen Woods was born on February 4th, the son of a rich lawyer and former college football star, and a mother who did not work. From what I can gather, they were practically the JFK and Jackie O of the wealthy South Edmonton Wasps. While his mother didn't have an official job, she more than kept busy. She was the head of numerous clubs and organizations. She was the secretary treasurer of the country club that they belonged to, as well as being the president and event organizer of a few local charities. They were a powerful couple to say the least, and it's safe to say that big things were expected from their one and only son. But as far as they were concerned, Sylvester, who some would consider a strange child, was not quite up to the woods' standard of excellence. Sylvester got off to a slow start academically And instead of enrolling in a variety of private schools, he was taught by a series of personal tutors, all of which were the best that money could buy. But his lack of a private school education didn't hold him back. Sylvester, even at a fairly young age, showed that he had a strong inclination towards science, even winning a citywide science fair at the age of 10. I tried to find out what project he had won with, but that little tidbit seems to be lost forever. I should remind myself to ask Sylvester about it next time I see him. If there is a next time. Science fair champion or not, the fact that Sylvester seemed destined for a life of test tubes and experiments, it didn't seem to interest his father, who seemed only interested in the idea that his heir take over his huge and prosperous law firm. And despite his best efforts in trying, that person would not be Sylvester Woods. Sylvester was no athlete. He hated sports, and he showed little interest in his father's business. 
Actually, he showed very little interest in anything besides studying and his own personal experiments, which are actually quite impressive. Sylvester had a knack for invention. He even created a way that fax machines could break down and process information quicker and without losing any information along the way. He eventually sold that to a little computing company called Microsoft for an unknown fee. But still, even this wasn't enough to keep Connor Woods interested in his son. Everything I could find, everyone I talked to, it all led to one thing. Connor was ashamed of his one and only son. Sylvester's mother, on the other hand, that's a different story. Evelyn Woods loved her son. She cared for him, protected him, and loved him unconditionally. She did as any parent should, really. She, unlike her lawyer husband, had been able to see the good in her son, and because of that, she spoiled him. Sylvester was not someone who heard the word no very often, and when he did, it wasn't something that he reacted too kindly towards. I talked to a number of nannies that worked for the Woods family during Sylvester's youth, and trust me, there was a near baker's dozen of them employed over a span of ten years that would describe Sylvester's behavior as troublesome. All 13 housekeepers had quit by the time Sylvester was 14. Evelyn showed Sylvester the affection and appreciation that his father never would. She had loved him, possibly to a fault, and the result was a young man who was prone to fits of anger, who would throw public tantrums when he wouldn't get his way. Of course, not when his father was around. When it came time to being around his father, Sylvester was always well-behaved. Connor Woods was never abusive, not physically, and not according to the Edmonton City Police, who verified that no report was ever filed in regards to Connor's behavior as a husband. But talking to people, old friends, neighbors, it is clear that Connor may have been emotionally abusive, not just to Sylvester, but possibly to Evelyn as well. That would explain her relationship with her son, which I won't describe as Norma Bates-esque, but it's pretty close. When it came to pleasing Sylvester, Evelyn would do anything he asked. This is why, in May of 1988, when it came down to backing up her beloved son's word, she did so without question. This is where my belief in Sylvester Woods tapers away, and my suspicion for him builds. On the night of May 18th, the police were called to the Woods house sometime near 10 p.m. They arrived to find a body at the foot of a long staircase, the body of Connor Woods. The story, given to the police by Sylvester and backed up by his mother, who were the only witnesses, went like this. Sylvester, who was in his room at the time, had heard his father bumbling around in the hallway. Connor was a well-known heavy drinker when there was a sudden crash and series of thuds. Both Sylvester and Evelyn, who was drying off from her evening bath, hurried out into the hall to find Connor Woods sprawled along the bottom of the stairs. Sylvester rushed to him, but found him to be already dead, a conclusion he was willing to make based on a first aid course he had taken at school. Connor Woods' blood alcohol level was 0.09, which lines up with the part of the story that has him being drunk. His body had a series of breaks and bruises, likely from the fall, which the coroner was satisfied with. The police, on the other hand, suspected otherwise. There had been a peculiar bruise along his back, and more importantly, along the fronts of both Connor's ankles, which the police equated to the idea that something had struck him hard in the legs and caused him to trip down the stairs. 
an object like a bat or something similar. Sadly, this was never more than a theory, and the official report was eventually ruled as an accident. Right now, I'm going to play the second part of the Sylvester Woods interview. I want you to listen carefully and take the information I just told you, all the stuff about Sylvester's childhood, his relationship with his mother, and the death of his father, and allow yourself to see Sylvester in a new light. Here it is. You have the tape? Yes. Do the cops know? That doesn't seem like a question that requires answering. No, I guess not. I'm going to be honest. At this point in the interview, I began to get a little uneasy. My suspicions for Sylvester Woods were always little, but I could feel them then, like they were crawling up my back. Why do you have it? A few reasons. Insurance is one, my safety is another. I felt it was pertinent to keep it for myself. Safety? Insurance? From who? Who do you think? Revolver? Woods stayed quiet. While he is a man that has an obvious intelligence, someone who is much smarter than myself, he can't help human nature. And if years of interviewing political figures has taught me anything, it's that avoiding a person's gaze is a major tell. And as Sylvester's eyes flew to the floor, I knew I had my answer. I understand this all sounds incredibly suspicious, but I assure you that I did so not for my own benefit, but because I had to. Okay. Mm, Hold on. I don't really get what you mean by that. If it wasn't for your benefit, then whose benefit? Why did you take it, and who for? There are things on that tape I couldn't let anyone see. Can I see it? Woods paused for a long while. I remember that he stared at me. He studied me like one of his many books on one of his many nights spent alone up in his bedroom of his parents' giant house. What he read on my face, in my eyes, and beyond, I don't know. But what I do know is that he trusted me. Trusted me enough to let me watch the tape. Sylvester Woods was clearly hesitant. I could see a man divided. He wanted to show me the tape. He wanted to tell his story, or his side of it anyway. After all, he has sort of always been like that, at least as far as I can tell with my little time spent with him, and what I've learned about him since. Sylvester Woods has always been a man that wants to tell his own story in his own way. That may be the only way to justify some of his actions, whether to himself or to others. After all, we're all the protagonists of our own stories, aren't we? Even David Berkowitz, the notorious New York serial killer, son of Sam, thought he was doing God's work, right? Okay, comparing Sylvester Woods to someone like the son of Sam killer is a bit harsh. Though while he is suspected of killing not just one, but two people, we live in a country where people are innocent until proven guilty. Isn't that what this whole thing is about? Proving guilt, or trying to anyway. And while I like Sylvester at a glance, the more I talk to him, the more I saw the selfish, egotistical, paranoid sides of him. He had a sort of constant motion, a continual state of calculation in his eyes that you could only see if you stared into them, looked past the vibrant green of his iris, and really looked into it. Coupled with his disarming, borderline charming demeanor, it was rather unsettling, and a feeling that grew within me with each word that slipped from between his thin, mustache-mounted lips. It reminded me of another serial killer, Ted Bundy, who tricked and lured young women with his charms and then proceeded to assault and murder them, 
something he had done more than 30 times. It was a comparison that I hoped, and still hope, is inaccurate. Even now, I want to believe that Sylvester Woods is one of the good guys. I walked over to his computer area. He pulled a small and ancient laptop out of his drawer, the bulky cube type that they made in the mid to late 90s. He booted it up, and as we waited, he explained that his particular computer had never been connected to a network and had no ability to do so, and was thus safe from government intrusion or other things of that nature. He rifled through a collection of files, moving through the computer's code, and he accessed a single video file. He backed away and allowed me to press play. I did, and this is what I saw. The video did indeed look like the lost security footage from the parking lot at Revolver Industries. I watched it on Fast Forward, which was Sylvester's recommendation. The date etched at the bottom of the screen was correct, August 20th, 1997, and after watching for a moment, I could visibly see Cole Atkins as he walked casually to his car. There was no sound attached to this video, which felt odd, me watching the video with Sylvester Woods lingering nearby quiet of his home computing system as our soundtrack. I watched Cole arrive at his car, when in the bottom of the screen, a young Sylvester Woods comes running over towards Cole's car. He gets Cole's attention, who waits until Sylvester Woods arrives. At the car, the two discuss something which we cannot hear, and slowly the argument turns heated. Cole seems to be the one to give up. He slouches in a familiar, defeated posture, then he gets into his car. Sylvester walks back inside and Cole drives off. We see him at the front gate talking to a barely visible security guard who we know is Martin Molson, our guest from episode one. Then, as Martin said, Cole backs up, parks in his spot, and gets out of his car. He begins walking, not to the front door, but to a smaller, less visible door at the side of the building and goes inside. A couple minutes go by, according to the footage, and that's when things get a little interesting there's a blip. The time jump at the bottom does something weird. It skips, but not forwards. It moves backwards for a second and then jumps forward, back to where it came. It's quick, but I caught it. I watched the video three more times, which is all Sylvester would allow me. And while nothing was inherently damning on this tape, even the argument between the two men seemed fairly mild. One thing was clear. This tape had been altered. I'm going to play the next part of the interview now, and, well, here it is. What you did was a pretty big deal. You very much broke the law. I mean, you purposefully shielded evidence from the police. Evidence that could help solve what happened to Cole Atkins, your co-worker and friend. It's not that simple. Well, explain it to me then. I took the video to keep it out of the wrong hands. You realize that the cops... Both detectives had you pegged as the lead suspect, and something like this. Even the idea of you hiding and stealing evidence doesn't exactly help you. You think I don't know that? It wasn't a matter of self-preservation. Like I said, I had to. It's how Cole would have wanted it. Forgive me, but how do you know that's what he wanted? Because he was the one who told me to steal the tape. Next time on Broadcast Mysteries. Broadcast Mysteries is produced by Joshua Roach, music by Michael Feen, logo and graphics designed by Alex Daranowski, and hosted by me, Carolee Gerwing.
Special thanks to Vince Smuda, Jason Vandeviver, Mackenzie Leap, Kevin Martin, The Lobby Video Store, Will Pfeiffer, Nuno Solaire, and Sarah Pullen. If you'd like to support us, follow us on Twitter at BC Mysteries, on Facebook and Instagram at Broadcast Mysteries, or you can email us at broadcastmysteries at gmail.com. The next episode of Broadcast Mysteries will be available in two weeks. Check us out at our website, broadcastmysteries.com, on iTunes, or on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.